0: Hi, everyone. This is Michael. In this episode, I spoke with an old colleague, and I'll say friend of mine, Nejim Rahim. Nejim is an associate professor of economics at Emerson College. I met Nejim during my dissertation work in rural New Mexico, as he and I both studied the traditional Aseki irrigation systems there, although in different parts of the state. These systems originated when the Spanish colonized the area and represent a long-standing example of community-based water management in the Southwest United States. Nejim was an early mentor and role model for me during my time in New Mexico, when I was trying to make connections and figure out my research project. During our conversation, we talked about Nejim's work on ecosystem services and how he has applied this approach to the Asakia systems and elsewhere. This is an accounting approach that tallies up the various sources of value that humans obtain from the natural environment. We talked about several challenges that this approach faces when applied to traditional systems. For example, some communities don't readily perceive the value of their local resources in monetary terms, and so the ways in which they do value their resources might not be legible to this methodology. Another interesting and important limitation that Nejim described is that the approach ignores the benefits that humans might bestow upon the environment and what their obligations to it might be conceived to be because the methodology is asymmetric, not acknowledging norms of reciprocity that humans create with their local environment. I really enjoyed this conversation and it made me miss the formative experiences I had in rural New Mexico and the people that I met there. Yeah. So I met you when I was in New Mexico doing field work for my dissertation and you were farther along in your own dissertation
1: right. at the University of New Mexico. I think I have a I think I have that right. That is right. We were living in Santa Fe and there was this interesting thing where like from time to time, because of Jose Rivera, who was on my committee. That's right. Right. So Jose would refer other doctoral students to me. Like, I don't know if you remember Vanessa Mazal. Did you meet her? I remember hearing a lot about her. I don't remember meeting her. So she was working Mm -hmm. with Devon Peña at the University of Washington on an ASECIA-related dissertation. She came and stayed with us for a little bit. You were working on yours in Indiana, and you came and stayed with us for a little bit. So yes, that's right. That's right. And that goes back to, like, 2006. Yeah. Yeah, that was very
0: generous of you to let me stay with y'all. I mean, I remember feeling a bit overwhelmed particularly when I started you know I didn't have a lot of guidance I would say in doing the dissertation I was just kind of out there and I felt like I was a bit on my own kind of like an anthropologist but I didn't want you know I feel like but without training (laughs) exactly right (laughs) and so I remember you you felt like this mentor to me to a bit like a kind of a big brother oh that's nice in the field because you well you're you know You're charming and articulate, Nejum, and you sound so confident. (laughs) (laughs) I I play a mean game. (laughs) Yeah. And so I remember, I think we went to a couple of meetings together, and I hadn't thought of Devon Pena in a long time. All these names are kind of flashing back to me. Yeah. But I remember, like, when I'm talking to you now, I'm just feeling nostalgic for, of course, like, what we haven't got to do for the last two years, which is, like, field work and being out and talking to people. But I remember, like, there... My time in New Mexico was when I fell in love with a lot about this job and the idea of like talking to people and learning their stories. And I still remember, it's funny that you just talked about like the landscape down in Southern New Mexico and what it leads to. Cause I, I literally remember us going for a drive somewhere mm-hmm. in New Mexico together. And you were like, hey man, you know, if you go East of here, it just starts to be like these rolling grassy hills. And then if you keep going, you get like the rockies and then it's just the plains and then it's like you in indiana <laughs> and i was like no shit and it was just so i don't know the uh, romantic is not the right word because i i it sounds kind of yeah, negative it's,
1: it's but yeah but it's super romantic i mean i know what you're yeah. talking about you're talking about the drive down from angel fire so we drove up through taos this is like one of my favorite drives at least in the United States, <laughs> but like drive up to Taos. So you're going up that epic fault line, right? On the Rio Grande, on the gorge there. And you come up over the mountains to Angel Fire, which does you gain like 2000 feet. So you're up in the high country. It's wetter and greener. And then you come down Coyote Creek, which is this gorgeous drainage down to Guadalupe and Mora. And you keep heading down that slope to Las Vegas, New Mexico. Because that's, that's, right. where, that's where I was doing my dissertation work was all mm-hmm. in on the acequias of the Gainas River, right? So that was all in San Miguel County. And so you come down to Las Vegas and Las Vegas is right there on this interface of the plains and the mountains. And it's like, it's just it's just the craziest. I don't know to me, it's just like, it's so, it's such an epic scale of change. Absolutely. Like, it's not like, it's not like in that direction there's another mountain range. No, no, no. In that direction it's just, it's the rest of the country. Right. <laughs> right? It's like vast. I and mean, yeah, the, and you were out in Indiana. So you're like, you're in a plain state, right? You're out there. And it's like, this is where that starts and ends. Yeah. And I just, I just, yeah, I, I, I love that shit, dude. I, I, I'm glad that you remember that. Cause I, yeah, that was I do. so moving. Uh, just And being able to spend all that time, like you said about the field work, like I was doing some field work in Galapagos a couple of years ago, January of 2020, actually. so not that long ago. And, um, and it's like, oh, right. I had this undergraduate student who's working with me. And I was like, you need to look up the geological history of this archipelago, because that's got to be a part of the paper. So, like, I'm putting you on that. She's a filmmaker. She doesn't know anything about geology, right? But I was like, seriously, this is the coolest stuff in the world. And so, yeah, I, I, that's right. I love that stuff, man.
0: So, Nijim, that reminds me of a question I know I want to ask you. And I don't remember if I warned you beforehand that we... we tend to like to ask questions of guests of like about themselves a bit before diving into their actual okay. work. Sure. And you've always been someone who's interesting to me for the seeming breadth of your interest, mm-hmm. at least in informal conversations, which is largely like how I experience you. Right. Um, Because you are, you do have a PhD from Uni- University of New Mexico in economics. Yes. You are, I understand it, a practicing environmental economist at Emerson College. Yes. And you don't always talk like an economist, which I find interesting. You have this, and maybe that's um, based on an unfair stereotype of what an economist is supposed to sound like. Right. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on how squarely you feel like you fit within the identity of an economist and where you kind of float out of it and
1: why. Yeah, okay. So yes, so. I don't, there's a lot of economists sign. I mean, we both know a ton of economists, right? So yep. not, not only do we have and are aware of the common stereotype of the economist as a sort of slightly autistic machine-like person who's like very like kind of clipped in their speech. Calculating and costs and benefits. Calculating costs and benefits, optimizing every decision, unconcerned with human impacts, blah, 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 blah. Right? Yeah, and, and also kind of hidebound in their analysis. Right? Absolutely. So. Okay, so cognizant of that, so let's admit that that's a stereotype. There are economists who are like that, (laughs) right? And there are economists who are not like that. But I think like to pull back a little bit, so when we met back then, so before I started my PhD at the University of New Mexico, and I feel like we must've talked about this, Carol and I ran a theater company in New York City. I do remember that now. Right? Yeah. So my undergraduate degree is from Bennington College in directing. Right. So I, so I could have
0: asked another question, which is like, why is this theater guy going and getting an econ degree is another way yeah. to put it.
1: Yeah. So, so, so part of, part of the whole thing is that I didn't know what direction to go into. I knew I wanted to work more in environmental policy. Mm, and okay. so I figured that would be a range of degrees, you know, probably an ecology degree, Maybe a mix of that and some other things. Honestly, at one point, I just wanted to work outside so much. I figured I'd get a surveying certificate, work for the highway department because it would at least keep me out of doors. Right. That was like, that was the, that was, I knew nothing. I knew nothing. I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, that sounds familiar and, to me. Right. Exactly. Right. So I ended up stumbling into the Econ program because of the following things. As a theater person, you, become accustomed to making informal contacts all the time just cold calling people and saying this is what i've got can i do something for you can we work on a thing together i need work it's new york i've got all these contacts i've got these skills help me out academia doesn't like that approach (laughs) right especially from total unknowns who are talking about your phd program so i just left voicemails for the chairs of like five departments. And one called me back, technically two called me back. And they both said, don't ever do that again. Like, that's such a dumb move. I'm calling you because it's so weird. Like, I'm just calling you kind of on a lark to figure out like, who is this idiot? And I was like, well, this idiot is interested in this. So anyway, I came to academia and I came to economics from totally outside it. And have learned, obviously, I have a PhD, like I have passed the gates, right? Um, but I always felt like the affect or the affective training and the communication training that I learned working in theater, where mm. you're working with groups of people who are in the same place at the same time, working different angles to a problem to solve it by a deadline. Mm-hmm. It That rewards charisma. hmm right? And it it rewards a huge amount of energy and enthusiasm. And I would find that that's kind of comes naturally to me. Mm -hmm. And working at the University of New Mexico, that was not the common affect among econ PhD students who are typically just sort of exhausted geeks um, and faculty who are the same, but older. Um, But I found that as a teacher, it was still incredibly effective yeah. because students come to your econ class thinking it's going to be miserable, boring, repetitive, and required. <laughs> right. right. And I'm like, all right, let's blow that out of the water. We're just going to have a party. Like we're going to eat. We're going to have coffee. We're going to talk about acequias, We're going to talk about your motorcycle, like whatever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I've actually like hung on to what is more of a natural Affect in part because I find it is effective almost as a counter-signaling strategy within the sort of weird social constraints of academia. Mm -hmm. And because I need to explain economics to people who are terrified or uninterested. Mm -hmm. The one of the best strategies that works for me is just to to, just sort of hit them sideways. Right. Right. And then working with people in other fields, because as you know, all the work we do is super interdisciplinary like and ecologists hate economics and geographers don't particularly care for our field all the time either and anthropologists are super skeptical right so like econ freaks people out so i also have to be like super diplomatic about that and so i'm not totally comfortable i Hmm. don't go to econ i don't go to econ conferences i publish i publish in like policy journals right You know, when I was up for tenure, one of the comments from one of the external reviewers was, I'm not sure if what Raheem does could be called economics. But he gets published and it's pretty cool. So like, fine. (laughs) I was like, okay, I don't really care.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like these skills that you have, very obviously must benefit say in the teaching realm right where i mean i think it's underappreciated in academia how much um of a performance good teaching also is it's not only a performance it's not just about like delivering content charismatically but it is about having you know i think we could call it a stage presence right like having a presence up in the room like you need to decide Mm -hmm. who you are and is there is like an acting quality to it you need to decide who you're going to be in front of these people it's not your whole yeah. identity. It's not right. like everything about you. So it's like, which version of you, which person do you want to be? That, that, that is inherently a little bit of acting.
1: Yeah, it, it is. And as someone who has four years of acting training and some acting experience outside of school, the other part of it that I think we all could use irrespective of any other component is the vocal control. Mm. Just mechanically, we talk for hours, right? And so variance And that control over that lack of exertion, like having, having an ease to that and also dealing with heckling because students heckle you, right? Mm -hmm. These are all things you learn as an actor.
0: So I have to ask you, because I know that like listeners are going to want me to ask you this, if you were going to give like two tips to someone who hasn't thought about this before, about how they're using their voice, what occurs to you?
1: I would say find some. There's a actually, I would, I can make some specific recommendations. I don't know if that's any kind of copyright violation, but there's a lot of really good instructional material on Spotify and on YouTube about just like vocal hygiene. Really on and Spotify? Okay. Yeah. There's recordings. Um, so I mean, I so said it's called this one I've been using is called Vocalize Joy Askew is the name of the person, the artist who does it. Um, and Yeah, I think it's like so many things, right? Like in academia, we focus on the intellect and the content, which is only a fragment of what we're actually doing. Totally. Right? Like we don't focus on judgment. But if you're writing about policy, (laughs) how do you strengthen that? Right. If you're teaching, you're typically in front of humans. And that's different for different people, I know. But like, you know, like our voice is a thing that we use.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. You can train it. So I feel like that's super important. And also like drink a lot of water.
0: That makes me happy. I drink like constantly while I'm lecturing actually.
1: <laughs> I can totally see it. Me too. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Um, okay. So you're at Emerson and you're doing environmental economics the way you do it. And so I think the main topic for us to really discuss with respect to your work is this concept of ecosystem services. Yeah. Both. Um, some theoretical or conceptual work that you've been involved in and then how you've applied it. I want to talk about both of those things with you. So I'd love to hear from you to start because um, one of the papers you share with me discusses a critique of the ecosystem service, uh, I'll, I guess I'll say paradigm. Mm-hmm. So can we can we start there? Can you talk to me about what you see as valuable about the ecosystem service perspective? What, what are ecosystem services? What do they do for someone like you?
1: Yeah, so we'll start from the very top because not everybody would necessarily know what they even are, but maybe in your, in your department, folks who are listening to this podcast will, but just, just to get yep. us kind of Let's on a shared, yep. a shared basis, ecosystem services is a fancy way of talking about the benefits that humans receive from nature, right? So of course you put a bunch of scientists onto this and you get a taxonomy, Right, so you've got going back, people have been talking about this concept in the ecology literature for years, and you can even go back to you know, Aldo Leopold and Buddhist law in Sri Lanka, dedicating like a certain amount of protection to these things because humans derive benefits from protecting nature. So it's not, it's not that we don't know about it, this just kind of codifies it and gives it a taxonomy. So Millennium Ecosystem Assessment 2005, coming out of the Millennium Development Goals of the UN, generally that's taken as like the big organizing principle. So you break ecosystem services into four big categories, provisioning, supporting, regulating, and cultural. So provisioning ecosystem services are sort of direct use things to use an econ term. So you're up in New Hampshire, you cut trees down, that's provisioning. You hunt deer, you take them out of the forest, that's provisioning. You're eating them, right? Or crops, that's provisioning. Supporting which is increasingly being taken out of the framework are the sort of underpinning ecological processes that make all of that possible. Primary productivity, photosynthesis, that sort of thing. Those aren't final products. Right. Right. Humans don't consume photosynthesis. We consume corn. Right. So those, those are underpinning. So they're not, they're hard for people to get a grasp on in terms of their value. Is that why that's being taken out of the framework by some people? Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Because they, Without those, there's nothing else, obviously. Right. But final consumption, from an economics perspective and a policy perspective, humans don't have a clear grasp on the value of photosynthesis. It's it's too far away. And then you've got support uh, regulating ecosystem services, which are mediating processes. Like here, I am on a lake in New Hampshire. The presence of the water here moderates the air temperature. Right. And you are further away maybe from the coast than I am. So the moderating effect of the Atlantic ocean up where you are in Hanover, may be less So maybe Hanover's colder regularly than for instance, in down in Boston, which is right on the coast. Right. So those are regulating ecosystem services. They include things like pest control, temperature control, so on. Right. Then you've got cultural ecosystem services, which is a big part of where I think the both of us work. Um, so for instance, One of the papers I sent you should have been the New Mexico um, Ecosystem Services paper. These would be typically thought of as non-consumed phenomena that arise in human interactions with the landscape, right? So any kind of religious practice that has to do with the landscape, tourism, recreation, all of those sorts of things, catch and release fishing because it's technically non-consumptive. That turns out to kind of have some, <laughs> that's a hair splitter right there because often the fish die. So is it consumptive? Is it non-consumptive? I leave that up to the agencies to decide. It's, I recognize this thing. So you've got these big four categories. And so I wrote a piece recently with a colleague from NOAA who's the chief economist at their um, sanctuaries unit. And I started reading in some of the sort of more philosophical literature about this, um, which uses the term boundary object To describe the concept, which is something that I had not come across before, though I get it sort of immediately. And the concept of a boundary object is something that can basically serve as a post on the border between a bunch of disciplines, that those disciplines can kind of come together around. Right. So, to answer another part of your question, the thing I think is great about ecosystem services is they don't, the concept doesn't lie squarely in any one discipline the very construction of it requires interdisciplinarity right so like a lot of people who work in ecology or or biodiversity conservation will point out that it's so anthropocentric in its construction that it's that's one of their main critiques that it's focused on the benefits humans derive from nature so it's not focused on the inherent underlying processes and i'll say sure i get it i agree that's problematic but Humans tend to be the ones who destroy the planet. So in order for us to stop destroying it, we need to focus on what it is that we get from not destroying it. So that just puts a little extra human spin on the ecology. Mm-hmm. But it's also about ecological processes. So a straight economic perspective of, let's say, diminishing marginal returns from some particular thing, it, that doesn't necessarily scale. So you gotta work with ecologists to figure out that actually your econ models don't work at all in the con you can't just like say this hectare is the same as this hectare or the more hectares you get the less value you get that that's a super empirical question right so to me that's great and it also creates a framework this is a lot of the work we've been doing uh with the with the, the framework recently is it creates a it creates a way to ask people who do different things to talk about the same thing hmm Right, so instead of and this goes, this is a sort of Dan Kahneman. Well, actually, it's more of a Atul Gawande kind of thing. So it's like a, it gives people a checklist, right? So instead of just saying, Mike, so you live up in New Hampshire, what do you like about the landscape? Well, maybe you're a backcountry skier. Maybe that's your anchor and that's your focus, right? That's kind of your frame. But if you say, well, do you see these regulating processes happening? Do you see these provisioning processes happening? You can think through that question in a more detailed way that's the to me that's like the good okay
0: so i love this idea of a boundary object i think we need it i think we need boundary actors in the world we need objects and people that are able to connect other people to help them work together both for interdisciplinary science and for just the management of the environment yeah um you to some extent preempted my next question because you, you mentioned something that pe- some people don't like about the concept of ecosystem services. And in the paper that you shared with me, you're responding to critiques of, of the concept of ecosystem services. So, well, I guess my first question, which is, is not one I had until you just were talking is, are people really being brought together by this concept of ecosystem services? Because I think, mm. I actually, I think I have the impression that the people who talk to me about ecosystem services now are, are economists. And so in the space where ecosystem services is talked about and used, is it this kind of democratic, interdisciplinary scientific democracy that we want to imagine? Or is there a legitimate concern that economists are starting to, you can say run
1: the show if you want run
0: the show right is is are there power that, are there like power asymmetries yeah. between the people who are trying to work together to implement this concept is that there like are. a legitimate
1: complaint yeah it's a legitimate complaint and it's it's the answer to the general question of like is this thing working democratically yes and no right i mean like everything else right because it's super decentralized first of all right um, and I found myself- Academia is, is decentralized? What? <laughs> I know, what do you mean? But we're governed by the Central Council. Um, I was working on a bunch of papers uh, on a, a ecological drought with folks who were atmospheric scientists, landscape people, wildlife people. We got hydrologists, fish people, couple of economists, climate people, da, 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 da. and so we're talking through the framework for the first, first paper. And I say, oh, well, this is an ecosystem services thing. And they said, well, no, because we don't actually have the dollar values for them. And I was like, well, you don't need dollar values for them ever, really, unless you're in an explicit benefit-cost analysis situation, which requires stating them that way. I'm just talking about like, are they there? And I realized, again, that this chain of these weird power dynamics, it has many beginnings, right? One beginning is that, people's disciplines blind them to other people's disciplines, right? So yeah, so economists, I've seen this, economists can be dreadful talking to people who do other work, right? So it's like, well, but (laughs) we know that this function increases monotonically. So no, but you've never looked at the ecology of it. It doesn't do that. And then everything sort of breaks down, right? Uh, Then the ecologists think that the economists are there just to put money values on everything. So they shy away. And at the same time, I saw this in some work I was doing in California on a marine ecosystem services project. People working in government, people working in changing policy, they need quick answers. And the quick answer that makes sense to many people is a dollar value. Right. Like these wetlands are worth 50 bucks an acre.
0: A cost or a benefit. Yeah.
1: Exactly. It's like straight up, just like that. And it's like, so one of the things we, all of the science people, were saying to the policy guy in the California paper was, If we do that, we'll be lying and you'll get busted in court and the whole method will look wrong because that might be true here, but it's not going to be true somewhere else. So if you're near San Francisco in a wealthy, relatively left-leaning community, you're going to get higher dollar values per hectare for unprotected wetlands than if you're asking the same question of a lower income, more politically conservative community in the Central Valley. So, Let's pick up on that
0: because I actually think a lot of people would say that that's one of the main issues with economic valuation per se is that it it's, yep. it's it's weighting the preferences of wealthy people, right? When people say like, "Oh, we need to divert water in the West to its highest and best use," what there's right. you know, what you can interpret them as saying is we need to make sure that people with money can get what they want.
1: <laughs> exactly right. So this is so this is a this is a part of the bigger argument, right? So the thing to do is you wait. Income groups in your analysis, right? Okay. Or 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 you scale it to percentage of income, and then you may actually see something that's inverse, right? So you may see that lower income people might be actually willing to pay a higher percentage of their
0: of their right. salary. So this right? is something that so, pe- people who do this know about, and there is like a yeah, way to compensate. Yeah. So for So methodologically, it. I don't know if that's always yeah. appreciated.
1: It, it's not. Um, it's not always, but methodologically there are ways to address it. And and actually a hilarious thing. From some of my earlier acequia work i gave a talk in valencia at a big acequia conference It wasn't that big but it was awesome uh, in spain um, in spain i'm so jealous oh mike you would have up oh, it was we had a two-hour lunch every day and they served us wine <laughs> it was i was like why don't we do everything like this right Oh, Why isn't this like every summer? Oh my God, it was gorgeous. So I did all irrigation people from all over the world, like North Africa, South America. It was great. And so I was doing this willingness to pay for like a cultural attributes program of for acequias in Northern New Mexico. Mm-hmm. It, it would be like an acequia culture training program run by the New Mexico Acequia Association, like run by people in the community, you know? Like, okay, let's let's preserve traditional farming methods, whatever it was, right? This whole bunch of attributes, higher willingness to pay among non-Hispanic PhD holders and court had nothing to do with income and nothing to do with income. So nothing in the data really gave me the answer. And so I would bring this up at conferences. I was like, economic theory would predict that Hispanic community members, because this is part of their culture would Mm -hmm. have a higher value for this. But the data show that even correcting for income they're not willing to pay as much. And several people I would talk to who are academics, but also irrigators from that part of the state would say, of course not, that's ours. Why would we pay for it? Interesting. And I was like, right, so econ doesn't really have a good way to handle that. <laughs> that's, that's, right. that's not what you would call a rational preference. Like, of course they value it more. That's why they're not gonna pay for it. Right. And they shouldn't have to. So it's kind of a question of property rights, right? So, so the valuation thing, I, Increasingly, with ecosystem services, I'm less interested in putting dollar values on them. To me, the dollar values represent the fact that they matter to people. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I know this is indefensible in, in a cost-benefit analysis perspective, but like that, we've got to have that as our starting point. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. like like the actual dollar values like i've done valuation exercises like okay they, i mean if they're really consistent over time that's awesome that's probably what they are right but on a one-off basis they're subject to all kinds of biases they're subject to analytical like methodological biases they're subject to like people not correcting for income they are said sub- they could be subject to like an, a knowledge bias right or they could be subject to the kind of cultural thing i saw in new mexico so if you ask indigenous people in a certain part of Australia, for instance, or the way in Northern Canada that don't have a ton of experience in a cash economy. Exactly. The translation of value to money is not straightforward. Right. The, method, the method doesn't hold. It's, you know, this, this thing of things of certain research being weird, which is like white, educated, something-
0: Industrialized, um, right. rich and democratic, I think. I've I've, I've yeah. yeah. Joe right. Henrik recently wrote a book called like the weirdest people in the world. Mm which I've been reading reading through. And he talks all about like why weird people are weird and how they're different. Mm-hmm. I should say how we're different. I'm definitely weird. So yeah. Nejan, um, I so, so, Nez, that reminds me of, of one more element of that article you sent me that I wanna to touch on before we um, move on is yeah, I mean, so I've been recently also been reading a book called *The Anti-Politics Machine* by this. Um, his name is James or Peter Ferguson about a development project in the Sioux and it's mm-hmm. it has an example that fits this framing exactly. There's this okay. thing that he calls the bovine mystique among Basutu the, the herders, where their livestock they don't view them as commodities the livestock are very much embedded in this network of local social norms. That means that they are dealt with differently. Their property rights governing them are different. And this is not a, gonna be a 10 minute tangent about the bovine mystique and Lesotho. so that's all I'll say. But there, you know, I think it does reflect this concern that people again have with this approach of, well, it's about assigning dollar values. More generally, it's about measurement. And so we could also talk about just like the problematics of measurement, but in terms of assigning dollar values, I think you're exactly right that an issue with it is it is assuming like a highly commodified cultural context.
1: Oh, yeah. So in the second article, I think of it second, just because chronologically much more recent just got published that I sent you. Danielle and I, we talk about how do you use an ecosystem service framework for cultural ecosystem services in marine sanctuaries, particularly in So talking about Hawaii um, and American Samoa, and also Olympic Coast in Washington state, where you're working extensively with indigenous communities. A thing that comes up a lot, and this is not to generalize about indigenous communities, because this comes up in a lot of my background, which is more in South Asia, (laughs) right? It's like certain pieces of information, they are simply not public knowledge. And knowledge mm. holders, lineage holders, are not going to talk about them, even with people they know. And they're sure as hell not gonna talk about them with government scientists from Washington City, Washington DC, right? It's just not gonna happen. Who are so, trying
0: to measure things about their culture.
1: Who are trying to measure yeah. things about their culture, right? So one of the one of the folks from American Samoa, so I've been editing this Elsevier this encyclopedia on Imperial Ecosystem Services, and it's just been great, because I've been working with people from all over the world, and some of the folks from this NOAA project, and it just kind of reinforces this, that one of the things that NOAA Sanctuaries has come to is recognizing that in each sanctuary, if you're working with a different community, you're going to have to modify your measurement. Otherwise you have no buy-in with the community. If you wanna rec- record everything and you wanna record it in dollar values, they will simply not give you a thing. This just the whole thing's over. And mm-hmm. then, then you're fighting a stupid colonial rear guard action right it's like just a just ever waste of everyone's time and a perpetuation of like american horror show policies in the pacific right right and so for instance in Samoa, certain things they agreed were not going to be in the reports and certain things were going to just be described same thing in olympic coast and same thing in the chumash with the chumash people in california so it's like okay we can still do comparable methodological evaluation work, which satisfies the need for a government agency doing monitoring, right? You've got centralized federal authority saying these are all things in the network of NOAA. We need some degree of consistency, but you got to recognize that that consistency is going to waver some because you're dealing with people. And to me, that's like, if you don't handle that democratically, I don't mean democratically capital D or democratic, even small D, but if you don't handle that, like respectfully and thoughtfully, then you are really just perpetuating the same nonsense that's gotten us into this problem to start with. You're saying we have this way of doing things. You come along. Mm -hmm. Right. So for instance, one of the guys from Hawaii, who's just, he's, it's been amazing talking to this guy. He does a lot of this kind of translational work. He's like, so, for a lot of native Hawaiians like walking the back country and walking up on the ridge line, that's not recreational. You guys might call it hiking. For you, it's fun. For us, it's like that is, we do that to, to inventory. We do that to pay attention to the condition of the landscape. We do that to reverence certain religious practices. It's like, it's not like fun in our context. Fun is kind of childish. Right? So that's one thing. So he's like, these are non-commensurate activities. The other thing is, and this is the point that comes up a lot in the critiques of ecosystem services, was like, OK, we can talk about the benefits that humans derive from nature. What about the benefits that humans confer upon nature? What about cultures in which like, doing work for the landscape is central to who you are? In Western conceptions, to use that as broadly as we can, it's not. <laughs> It's mm-hmm. not like, all right, so I cut this tree down, I get firewood. That's great. It keeps me warm. I don't cut that tree down, I get biodiversity. That's great. It keeps me happy. Okay, but like, what's your obligation to the forest? What's your relationship to where you live? We sort of stumble on that sense of place thing a little bit. The acequillos totally get it. Right. Mm. But like, it's just not a widespread thing. And so, that's another interesting point is, and I've seen this from work in Australia. I've seen this from work all over the world. People are like this bi-directional reciprocal relationship with nature is totally absent in the philosophical underpinnings of ecosystem services. It's like, what can you do for me? Right. You know, where's. Like, does that bother with... you? Yeah, it does. It does bother me. But as you know, like if you want to fix things you have to learn to live with like a certain amount of things not being perfect
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right so like can i live with that being not perfect but still work towards improving that because honestly i think like generally speaking like environmental management landscape management parks management if we were to think of it more reciprocally i think it would work better Mm -hmm. so can we humans have done it before
0: right right so it sounds like like a lot of concepts ecosystem services can be used for let's say good or ill they can be used as a way right. to impose external perspectives on a local system which has been problematized you know around the block a few times and it sounds like right that there's also a motivation maybe on your part and others to use the framework to actually recognize, do the opposite, recognize the contributions that local systems are making by also providing services in the ways in which they interact
1: with the local environment, is that fair? Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's, it's a combination of that and, rec- so like, for instance, I talked about this with this guy I was telling you about from Hawaii, right. Kalani Kyocho, one of the points we make often in conversation with each other is like, yes, we agree, white scientists western scientists whatever you want to say needs to learn to communicate better with indigenous people like totally that's a worldwide thing but at the same time the opposite needs to be true as well so that if you've got white scientists whatever you want to call us working in these communities if the community just has this negative perspective and doesn't understand the mindset of what Kalani calls the science tribe I was like, this is, he's like, this is, you guys are super odd. Like you guys speak your own language, you have your own own cosmology, but you think you don't because you're from different countries. You're not from different countries. He's like, you're all from the science country.
0: did you, did you Have you heard about this paper? It's called uh, the, the tribe of the econ
1: written by like an anthropologist. If you haven't, oh, I have to send it to you. It's like lovely. I have heard about it, but if you would send it to me, that'd be awesome. Cause I don't think I've read it either for a long time or ever. Cause I know about it, but it's not clear in my mind.
0: Yeah, as someone who's like a solidly one-third econ, one-third anthropologist, and one-third who knows, like, it's, <laughs> yeah.
1: it's quite mm-hmm. something, to, yeah. Yeah, so we're like, yeah, I think, so like, it's both that recognition of like the validity and like inherent goodness, inherent validity of different management systems and different cultural systems, combined with the recognition that in the culture of a federal agency, you can't just use totally different approaches all the time. Because then you're simply not remotely measuring the same thing and you don't know year to year or report to report what the hell is going on in your, on your patch. Right. Right, So that's the reason.
0: Isn't there a tension there, Nejim, in in the comparability? I mean, you, you mentioned this a little bit, but if we want to recognize... The diverse ways in which people might understand ecosystem services, say cultural services, but we're also using this from a kind of bureaucratic perspective to ultimately compare different places. How do you square that circle?
1: Yeah, I think you kind of don't. Um, that's the hard thing. This has been on my mind a lot the past couple of years. It's like, all right. You recognize that like with so many things that come about from the intersection or clashing of cultures, you get this third culture thing and that's like kind of neither fish nor fowl, right? And mm. so I think the point we're trying to make in that opinion piece is resonant to me at a bigger point it's like, all right, is it is it the best way to do ecosystem services monitoring? No. Is it the best way to show respect for different cultural groups? Probably not. Is it the best way to do both of those things? Yeah, kind of. right mm. so you're gonna you're gonna put up with a little loss of fidelity between sites. Right. Mm-hmm. So the Chumash people, they're not going to report on this. Well, maybe you know, you've got folks in the Great Lakes region who are totally happy talking about that. Okay, so that site report is going to be consistent year to year, but mm-hmm. not consistent with another site report. Overall, yeah, overall you're basically using the same framework. Right. Overall, people are, and then if you're doing that over time, more and more practitioners and more and more stakeholders can say, oh, okay. The government is actually willing to get a little bit closer to what we indians have been saying for hundreds and hundreds of years to you crazy white people which is like you don't know this country at all right like, like, like this is not your country you're coming here from this other country and you're thinking that like your paradigms work like welcome to north america this is a totally different place you know so like there can maybe be some softening towards that perspective mm. right and right. i feel like I feel like that might, it's like that old econ joke of like, would you rather be precisely wrong or generally right?
0: Yeah, precisely wrong every time.
1: Yeah, (laughs) personally, (laughs) me precisely wrong every single time to the ninth decimal place. But like, you know, I I feel like, all right, is it ethically the right direction? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I like that too. I mean, it reminds me of something, It's related to what you said earlier, Nejim, where you're talking about, okay, ecosystem services is about one direction, but we ultimately would wanna care about both directions. Like what do we contribute to Mm -hmm. the land? And so you're making a similar point here where it's, okay, it's not just the direction of, from these policymakers and bureaucrats towards the communities, but it's from the communities also influencing how the policymakers and bureaucrats might do what they're doing.
1: Right, right. And, and, Yeah, and you know, so when I read the critiques of ecosystem services approach, like I agree with almost all of them, right? But a lot of times then the prescription that comes out of those critiques is let's create a new framework. Let's create a new perfect thing. And it's like, well, but then nobody nobody knows what that is.
0: Nejan, that's one of my favorite things I've read. So on the, as a part of the podcast, we also have a blog. And at one point I wrote a a blog entry basically called, we don't need more frameworks. Because it's just like we... (laughs) Yeah, You can throw a rocket in an environmental studies journal and you'll hit five papers that introduce a new framework. And I'm just yeah. like, we, 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 this is not yeah. the, the, speak, speaking to an economist, right? The diminishing marginal returns oh my God. of like we're, the 50th framework, like we're well uh, past where it matters.
1: Yeah. And, and in my experience, you know, like so I was proposing this whole project that I was hoping to get done on my sabbatical, but then of course there was a global pandemic. Um, I wanted to do a big and the encyclopedia is sort of scratching this itch, but not really. I wanted to do this, this big project on sort of like get operationalizing ecosystem services in marine conservation, like, like, like creating a simple way of talking about them, not at the upper PhD managerial level, but at the like parabiologist, fisher person ground level, right? And so I talked to people who were at the upper PhD sort of level. They're like, oh, but come on, everybody knows what that means. And then you get down a couple of the notches and people are like, Nobody knows what that means. And then you get up in the middle and they're like, you know, there's a couple of people who have a sense of what it means, but I think the people at the top don't know what it means. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you guys, even in a framework that's decades old at this point, widely discussed extensive publications, there's training programs on this, people still don't have the grasp of what the basic structure of it is. And like, you want to introduce a whole new paradigm of looking at this? Like, yeah, it'll get you published. That's great. But you're playing yeah. the Nash. You're just playing the Nash that way. To me, that's what's going on. Like, we've got this thing. It basically works.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Can, can we please just, like, like stop caring about it. Stop treating it like a god, first of all. Like, it's just, it's just, like, a thing that people agree sort of is a thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, let's, let's not reverence it. Let's yeah. add things on as we need it, you know? And then, like, okay, let's make it work and stop spending all of our considerable brain power on like polishing a ray gun somewhere in space like it's just so it seems so unproductive to me
0: yes i agree yes so i want to keep talking about this but i also i want to get to the acequias and your work on them i would love to hear your take on what attracted you to the acequias as Mm -hmm. a, a subject for your dissertation like what about them is like special to you yeah
1: so the acequias are an experience good right as much as anything Uh, my initial connection with them was i was talking to william gonzalez who you know or you may remember and william is my friend leah's stepdad so i know her i know william through my friend leah and so we were hanging out up, up there in las vegas or maybe down in santa fe i can't remember where And I was talking about my frustrations with trying to find a dissertation project. And William, like he does, he's like, oh, you're getting a PhD in environmental economics? Well, we need environmental economics to make a legal case against a lot of water transfers out of acequias. And I was like, okay, I've heard of these acequias, but like um, I want a little little more background. And uh, so I got a kind of crash course in acequias from William Gonzalez. And then subsequently from many other people and of course, from readings. But the thing that, so a couple things hooked me. I think I told you this, but when I was a kid, my dad worked for the UN and my dad's from Sri Lanka, which has this ancient, ancient, highly sophisticated hydraulic culture, right? Like incredible irrigation systems, stretching back thousands of years in Sri Lanka, amazing degrees of engineering, water storage, water sharing, complex rules about them tons of work published on it. And that turns out to be an object of interest in my family. My uncle Omar, who's a, who a civil engineer, had worked with RL Brohir, who had written these like really big books on the irrigation systems, the classical irrigation systems of Sri Lanka. And I've spent time around that. And then also when I was a kid, we lived in Bangladesh and Nepal, both pretty wet countries with some exceptions. But I remember in Bangladesh when I was a kid, so in the lake behind our house, it would dry up, During the dry season and people would it would be patties right rice patties and there was a big commotion one day and my recollection of it from when I was seven or eight was that what had happened is somebody had cut the wall or dike between his field and somebody else's field to get that guy's water into his field and the guy whose water was stolen killed him with a hoe wow just like killed him with a farming implement and I was like I don't understand like there's bangladesh is a delta it's it's more water than anything else right it's like why are people fighting over this thing that's everywhere and somebody pointed out at the time they're like we have a lot of water but like that water was going to grow that guy's rice somebody takes that water out it's a it's a pretty violent crime really to like take someone's food away, right? <laughs> in, a, mm-hmm. in like one of the poorest countries on earth back in the 70s. And so like the response was proportional in this guy's perspective. And when I started talking to the Asequietos, I thought this is so interesting. I love when aspects of my childhood, which was largely spent in South Asia, manifest in the United States, which I was always taught was a really different place. And so to me, the acequias being these gravity fed, pretty simple from a mechanical perspective or from an industrial perspective maybe, pretty simple systems, they're incredibly sophisticated really from a number of perspectives, engineering, social, so on, but they're also like this just direct connection with the landscape that at least at the time, I know much more about that now, but like at the time, I thought was really unusual in North America. And it reminded me of an aspect of home, home being my childhood in Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and India. Right. And so I was like, it's not just the poverty of it, it's the it's because New Mexico is pretty poor. But like it's the like it's like the directness of it. And so I felt very, even though culturally I'm not from northern New Mexico, northern New Mexico, Hispanic culture is a very particular thing, super mm-hmm. particular. Um, And not that in any kind of way, but I felt an affinity with the landscape, I felt an affinity with the systems, I felt an affinity with the communities. Um, And kind of like we were talking about at the beginning. It gave me an opportunity to spend a ton of time talking to people in a state where I lived and where, you know, I'm always interested in the history of places but like I got to learn so much about new mexico and i feel like you don't get that in a lot of ways (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. what i mean Mm -hmm. new mexico is kind of a it's kind of a colony in the sense that people live on the surface of it but it's thousands of miles deep right it's like thousands of miles deep and that's not even scratching the whole indigenous history of the place so like I just was super drawn to that and the project was tied into a legal precedent. So I was hoping that this might have some positive consequences for a lot of the communities. We're trying to establish the point that like water rights sales need to consider all of these non-market impacts.
0: Right? Najim, can you, can you give listeners just a little bit of background about what these water rights sales are about?
1: Of course, yeah, 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 totally. Sorry, I totally got drawn into the No, and this is all terrific. Jargon. Um, so, but, so in the Eastern United States, for those of you who live in Hanover or, you know, largely East the Mississippi, the water rights doctrine that prevails is called the riparian doctrine, which really suggests that like, if water is like water belongs in the river to a certain extent, and you have rights to water that is adjacent to your property in the Western United States, the dominant sort of legal paradigm is the prior appropriations doctrine, which is derived from mining laws in the 1870s. And it really states that. The first person to take water out of a water body is the person with the senior most rights therefore during dry seasons or times of shortage that person has priority over all others and water can be sold out of a channel which which is tech, really as i as i understand the doctrine it's not possible here in the east we have way more water <laughs> which is part of the the reason for this right so in new mexico people um you'll have these irrigators who are typically fairly low income people in fairly poor parts of the state um not always but generally speaking and um you will have for instance let's say you have a development going in that needs water that development can buy these surface water rights from farmers right and the surface water rights so that's you know it's legal uh there's nothing shady about it per se but there was a decision in the 80s, I think, Art Insinias, who is the, uh, the presiding judge, I think, on that particular case, made the argument that if a community, so this, this every, every, every sentence here has like huge ramifications, right? If yeah. a community decides that the impact of a particular water sale is adverse to the functioning of an irrigation system in that community, which obviously it could be, the community can band together to stop that sale. Right, So the, in, in American US jurisprudence, the water right is a private good in the sort of shared inheritance of Hispanic, Arabic, and indigenous water law that happens in the Hispanic communities in northern New Mexico, water is more historically owned collectively because the pressure in a given canal depends on the amount of water that's in the channel. So if you take out water upstream of that, you're going to have less effective hydraulic pressure in these systems, right? So one of the things that the law doesn't explicitly recognize, it might now, but it didn't at the time, there's been a lot of activity from Ben Ray Lujan's office in the Senate recently, so I can't keep up with all of it, is that the water that is used in these irrigation systems provides not only the benefit, which is often quite small, of the crops that are grown from it, and sold, if they're sold, right? But it also provides all of these benefits, which folks like Steve Gulden and a bunch of other folks at New Mexico State University are finding that there are all of these hydrologic interactions between the aceca channels, the main stem river and groundwater systems, right? So it actually, because these ditches are not lined, often the water will leak out of them, which is seen on one hand as an inefficiency, on the other as an ecological interaction. They might provide for riparian habitat, for migratory songbirds. They also connect the communities to centuries of culture. So all of those things can be argued from an economic perspective to have monetary benefit. And often the sale of the water right does not recognize the complexity of the good itself. Instead, it says, well, I'm offering you this much money. You're getting this much money from your water now because you're not growing a lot of alfalfa or whatever. You'll get more money by selling it. But will you get more value (laughs) is really the question, right? And so that was kind of the thrust of my however many hundred pages dissertation was basically like, so a market on its own won't recognize these things. You need to have a mechanism to formally address all of these components of the sale of water out of an acequia in particular was i successful no i you know i didn't <laughs> i didn't get to influence the new mexico legislature but i tried
0: mm. yeah i mean as you were talking right it it you could start to map your descriptions of the specific services the aṣkīs are providing with this taxonomy that you were talking about before cultural provisioning yes, regulating exactly. supporting yeah and i saw in the paper you shared with me that like the groundwater recharge you filed under like it's a regulating service yeah um, there's obviously important cultural provisions provisioning that's happening. Tons, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it, it it's it's interesting, right? because we're we're in this still this thorny space of I mean, you saying that this is the challenge of of the dollar again, as a signifier of value. This is how markets was well, more than one problem that markets have, but this is a big one is that everything gets smushed into this one value ignoring positive yeah. and negative externalities. Yeah. And so I've. this has always been like an issue with me that there's this distinction between public and private in the policy discourse. And some people think that, you know, big government is the problem. And I actually think that, <laughs> that there's something to that. Centralized governments mm-hmm. do do a lot of bad things. They mm-hmm. homogenize, ecologies and their citizenry. But at the same time, like markets are not this decentralized utopian alternative to the centralized state. They they do all of these, a lot of these same things. Commodification is just as much about like analytical simplification as anything like a big state does.
1: And markets are often driven by the same cultures that make up whatever the government is. Right. Right. And governments aren't as organized as people think they are. I have great conversations with a friend of mine in Montana, who's I don't remember exactly her position. That's a she, good point. You know, she'll make the point. She's like a lot of people she talks to. They're like, well, you work for the government. So I don't want, like she said, I am a person. I am from Montana. Like I live in the same town that <laughs> you do. <laughs> like, I yes, my job is paid for by your tax dollars. Totally agree with that. But like the government is just made up of people. Right. right, I'm not tapped into the hive mind, it's like because it doesn't work that way, right? So, right. I agree. I think that's it. So, all of those dualities, as with most dualities, are false, meaningless, problematic. Um, and I also think that. So when I, sorry, this is super cool. When I was doing this research in New Mexico, I got onto a radio show. To so me and my friend William Gonzalez, William is like a firebrand activist organizer farmer, many generations in the country. Um, We got on this radio show and it's very local, Las Vegas, New Mexico. And people would call up after we kind of talked about the project and they'd say, wait a second, are you saying that the stuff that we just do on a daily basis, that we can demonstrate that that has monetary value and we can weigh that against the monetary value of using the water somewhere else? And I said, yeah, that's pretty much the thrust of it. And they were so excited. Because to them, in a way, it was like, oh, you mean we can show the mainstream system that what we do matters? To me, that that's at the core of putting the dollar value on. Right, you make it visible. You make it visible and you make it comprehensible and everything is in one metric. Does that squash some accuracy? Of course it does. Does it run into all kinds of problems with commodification? Oh yeah, oh <laughs> big time. But does it have to? No, can it be done sensibly? Yes, does that mean it's going to happen that way? No, good things turn out to be hard to do. Right, like, okay.
0: Yeah, it's just interesting that you're using a tool that is trying to address a problem created by a fundamental element of the tool.
1: Yep, yep, it's kind of like biocontrol. control. Yeah,
0: Yeah. right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's interesting. So have you, Nejim? Have you? Um, I've not stayed in touch with like the Asakia situation, and most of my fieldwork's been in the Dominican Republic for a while, and in, like a couple other places. Right. Um, have you, you know, kept in touch since moving I'm, to the, I as know, you put it, east of the Mississippi?
1: Exactly. I'm in touch with a lot of the people still. Like I talked to Steve Golden. He and a bunch of others contributed an article to this encyclopedia. I'm regularly in touch with Moses Gonzalez. We try to gin up projects from time to time. I talked with José Rivera, but I haven't done anything in New Mexico since that paper that I sent you. And it it's a little heartbreaking, partly because partly it's a sunk cost thing. Like I just spent I spent so much of like of my life force trying to figure that place out, right? Like learning about all this stuff and spending so much time. It's not that like the state doesn't owe me anything, but like I just I feel like I got really close to a lot of that, Yeah. and I feel like I feel like I've got this old friend now who doesn't talk to me as much, and it just is a bummer, you know. Um, if you could
0: go there for a weekend, what would you do?
1: If I go there for a weekend, huh. if I go for the weekend, I, I would be it would be largely hedonistic. I would eat a lot of green chili <laughs> and, and soak in a bunch of hot springs. <laughs> yeah, but if I, if I if I okay, went a week, a month, yeah, if I went there for a week, I would really start kind of recultivating a bunch of these connections and talking to folks about like stuff we could do because I see work coming out of these groups that I feel is strongly allied to work that I have actually done with these folks, you know? Like yeah. I, got to, I got to step into that stream and kind of tweak it in a particular direction, but they are working on that as well. It's not like I taught them all this stuff. So I would really love to be, and I keep trying, like I'm, I'm trying to apply for some funding for a drought project, And I was trying to direct it to New Mexico, but the federal agency we're working with, it's heading more towards Massachusetts. This is fine, I live in Mass, that's great. I love it here, but like, yeah. Yeah, like that paper, the ecosystem services paper with all the different nomenclature in it, Mm -hmm. that was a blast. Mm -hmm. It was was genuinely fun. You know, it was super like we had, but it's like 15 authors people from all these different fields were basically trying to find out like what the words are to stuff yeah (laughs) you know and then what the english language word is for that thing and it's not one it's not a one-to-one mapping right it's like it's like yeah it's uh, maps to like 15 english words right so like i just love that and i miss it and i would be pretty happy if that's what i got to do but you know people don't want you to publish the same thing just in different locations <laughs>
0: right so what even has replaced though, it? yeah no so just, I mean, even though
1: i think that would be actually kind of a good thing
0: yeah yeah so so what has replaced that for you nejim you mentioned you're working with some folks from NOAA, which i'm i'm, I'm always interested in folks who with academia that work with you know ngos and government types because i think we all need to do more of that yeah. um what are you up to now that's exciting you and what do you kind of hope to do more in the future?
1: So the NOAA work, that kind of ebbs and flows. I just kind of, cause I'm in touch with a bunch of people there. So for instance, it was very sweet. I was invited to help uh, moderate and guide a training workshop on cultural ecosystem services for some of these people who are managing these sites out in the Pacific, right? Mm. So it was over a couple of days working with people from Samoa, American Samoa, um, Hawaii, and back in the DC headquarters. So that was great. I actually got to provide training, insight, feedback, kind of shape the process of how they do this. That's super rewarding. I don't really get a publication out of that. Mm-hmm. So that's where Danielle and I, that piece that we did together, sort of comes out of that. Um, and I'm still working with some of those folks because the encyclopedia that I'm doing, I'm hoping to keep working with them because it's a good, it's a really good working relationship. Like we all get along, which is super cool. So That's one thing. The Galapagos work I'm hoping will keep coming back. Uh, Ecuador is a really hard place to travel right now. Anywhere is because of the pandemic. Um, And I'd love to do more work connecting ecosystem services to how water infrastructure is managed in Galapagos because Galapagos has way more people than most people think um, just as residents and it's very dry. And so I just think that'd be super interesting. But the thing that's really kind of lighting me up at the moment is I'm putting a lot of effort into working on a program at my college, which right now we're calling sustainability communication, which is like, is like a threshold concept and boundary object program. Okay. It's just like super interdisciplinary way of thinking about, all right, you've got, the, you got 17 SDGs. Let's call these like field areas right?
0: Sustainable development goals. Yeah.
1: Sorry. The 17 sustainable development goals. So that's like life on water, life on land, life underwater, sorry, life on land, like good health for all nutrition, for all education, for all things like this. So they span a range of disciplines. Emerson, our big strengths are arts and communication, Mm. but we have science faculty and we have, so we've got a lot of lit faculty. We've got film faculty. So I would love to put a program together that leverages our sort of the college's strengths in arts and communication with the capacity of our science and allied science type faculty to basically train people to be able to work in a range of fields, but with a focus on being able to communicate complex ideas about climate change, systemic racism, uh, biodiversity crises, things like that. So they Mm. they can choose an art and a field, and if they want to work as in, as documentary filmmakers, well, we've got that training. That right? we that happens. We've got that right. But what about the subject matter, and what about understanding the crossovers between the fields, right? To me, that that boundary, boundary sort of permeability, that's crucial. We uh, we still think a lot of times that well, you need to get a PhD to, to do that. Sometimes a PhD can blind you
0: because mm-hmm.
1: you're so conditioned to that way of thinking. Yeah. Right. And you don't see that. Oh, oh, in medicine, what they do is this totally different thing. Mm -hmm. Let's let's just take that because that'll probably work better, you know, or like something like that. So I want there to be like a real pedagogical focus on rather than just letting students take a range of courses and hoping they'll find the interdisciplinarity. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, man, that doesn't work all the time. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't work for people like us. And it certainly doesn't work for undergraduate students, right? So like training interdisciplinarity specifically, that's been super exciting for me.
0: So we started this conversation with this idea of a boundary object. I'd like to start to conclude it by asking you, um, you sound, there's this other concept, right? The boundary actor.
1: Mm. Uh,
0: You sound like someone who's, acting like a boundary actor do you perceive yourself that way you're trying to connect these different disciplines it's not you're never connecting disciplines uh alone you're always connecting people right you're connecting the people who implement that so it's a
1: deeply interpersonal exercise super interpersonal so i will often say this to my theater students because i teach students from all around the college because there's no econ department right so i'm just i'm gen ed and um i'll tell students who are theater majors, especially directing and, and uh, stage management. I was like, so what you're learning is super interdisciplinary. Everybody thinks it's just theater, but the truth is a designer has a totally different training and focus than an actor. A stage management person is, has a totally different training than any of those people. And then a director needs to understand all of those things. right? So as in my pr- program at my undergrad, As a director, you had to take four years of acting, two years of design, two years of stage management, and three years of directing. So like you had to have some grasp of all these things and you got to be the boundary actor. You got to be the person who coordinated all these people to make some art happen in a way that's hopefully like less than awful. And so, or more than awful, if that's your thing. So to me, doing that work was always about, keeping people engaged and challenged, right? So not being too much of a a dictator on set, but also not being just too much of a pushover and being nice to them, right? So to me, yeah, I- It sounds like
0: a space you're still pursuing.
1: It is. And I I, I feel like both of us know this because you talked about yourself as being like one third this, one third this, one third this. Econ's great, it's super powerful. It's also kind of crazy. Mm. Econ's super short-sighted about a lot of stuff, and economists are super short-sighted. It's like any religion is going to have lacunae in its cosmology. Fine, I don't adhere to any particular religion. I just want to make things better. So, like, if the Buddhists are down with that, like that's good. But the Hindus have this thing about this, like, okay, that's fine. So, I feel like to solve a problem, you can't do it from one perspective anyway. No matter what, really, no matter what the problem is, right? Even like a carpentry thing. But like, okay, so can we do that and be nice about it and have people actually enjoy the process and have it not be just onerous and like now you need to get another PhD before you talk to me kind of thing, right? That's, that's what I want to do. But also all the while convincing people that actually the folks with PhDs, like they busted their asses and that stuff is hard. Just mm. because it's crazy doesn't mean that it's, that you can just dismiss it. Mm. You know, like they slogged, gave up a lot. Like, it's super hard, right? It's super hard to do that. And so, like, on the one hand, have respect for it. On the other hand, don't have too much.
0: Yeah. You know? I like the the quote, which I just wrote down, is, can we do that and be nice about it?
1: <laughs> just, that's the, that's the I'm definitely gonna. It.
0: I'm, I'm going to use that yeah. on campus here. I'm just like, hey, can we do this and be nice about it? Yeah. I just feel like, yeah. I,
1: I feel like I'm printing up T-shirts. Like, okay, this is great, but we should try to be nice.
0: Let's do it and be nice. <laughs> you know yeah yeah um yeah awesome yeah well that sounds really exciting i I think that's the 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 direction we need to move you know within academia between academia and other types of institutions um it's something that we're not you know it does take a lot of informal interpersonal skills that aren't a part of our formal training that there is some kind of idiosyncratic variation across these but i think it's great to see um folks like you you know kind of leading the charge in that space using your interpersonal skills to do that because i think that's where change comes from a lot of the time i hope so yeah I hope so. um well we, of course we've already been talking for a while are there topics that i missed that you want to make sure to cover things you want to mention
1: no i don't think so i feel like we've we've ranged pretty widely yeah i would just strongly recommend anybody who's listening to this if they can to actually go to New Mexico and find a good recommendation for a green chili cheeseburger or a breakfast burrito. Don't just take the internet's word for it. Like talk to someone because it'll change your life.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries on our blog on our website, InCommonPodcast.org. The Incoming Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.